Welcome to another episode of Viatorian Voices Conversations on the Way. This episode is another roundtable on the way, a more in-depth feature to explore things a little further than we can squeeze into the usual 15 minutes. For this installment, we get to hear from Father Arnold Perm, CSV. Let's hear a bit about his background first. Father Perm, sometimes called Arnie by his friends and brothers, first encountered the Viatorians at St. Vider Parish in Chicago, where he was baptized and where his family went to church. He went on to Viatorian formation after high school and professed first vows as a Viatorian in 1948. He later sought priestly formation and was ordained a priest in 1956. He is in his 74th year of religious life and 67th year as a priest. Father Perm is an award-winning mathematician who has spent nearly all his years of ministry as a math teacher, including over 50 years at St. Vider High School in Arlington Heights, Illinois. He retired from full-time teaching in 2010, but he continues working with students at the school. Father Perm tutors in the math lab, works with members of the math team, and creates special projects that integrate technology into math for the school's Curb Scholars, a program which offers enrichment to students of exceptional academic promise. At the age of 92, Father Perm is the oldest Viatorian in the U.S., a bittersweet distinction he gained after the deaths in recent months of Brother Don Hood and Father John Milton, who were also both born in 1929, both one month before Father Perm. In retirement, Father Perm lives in the Province Center Retirement Community, and he is often seen busily working in the library, researching topics on the computer, and collecting information for his next projects. I'm Dan Masterton from Viatorian Vocation Ministry, and it's my pleasure to produce this episode for you. This conversation with Father Perm was conducted by Brother John Eustace, our Director of Vocation Ministry. The first voice you'll hear is John's, followed by Father Perm. Enjoy! Arnie! Good to be here with you. Yes, same here. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, you are, I believe, our, our senior member of this province. Is that correct? Yes, that, that is true. I am the senior member of the province. What does that mean for I you? I never thought I would get to this point, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to be able to be here with you at this point at least for the last 20 plus years, journey with you as well uh, in this community. Yes, and today we share the story. We do, we do. These are two interesting Viatorian voices converging at this table at the province center. I guess first things first is, yeah, we know you as a Viatorian, a majority of your life has been Viatorian. How did you encounter the Viatorian and what made you say, let me try this out? I was born in 1929. Uh, that was two weeks after the Great Crash. And it's also the same year that St. Vider Church in Chicago was dedicated. And that's the church in which I was baptized. I, I spent my whole family life, all the years I spent with my family were also spent in same by their parish. I remember that the family house was one block south of the front doors of the parish, so or the parish church. So if you stand on the front stairs of the church and look south, you can see the family home. Wow. So uh, of course, when I was in elementary school, I was also an altar boy. And frequently the assigned altar boy did not show up. So I got a call or my folks got a call from the rectory, whatever time it was, seven in the morning or eight in the morning, whatever. Can your son come over and help serve the mass at eight o'clock or whatever? Because the one who was assigned did not show up. So frequently that call came and within five minutes, I could be from the house to the front door of the church and into the sacristy, ready to serve the mass for that particular period. But and that happened frequently, especially especially on weekdays. So now, when you were going there and they asked your parents, uh, obviously your parents were willing to send you. Were you willing to oh, go? Oh yeah, I always filled in. That was a 
that was a happy occasion. So, <laughs> what did, what did you like about uh, being involved in the liturgy of the church like that? Well, materialism and secularism had not touched the northwest side of Chicago and St. Vitor Church, so everything was Catholic. Kids went to the Catholic elementary school. People went to mass every Sunday. On Sundays there were masses every hour on the hour from 6 a.m. until 12 noon. The parking lot there was relatively small. People, you could see the people walking through the neighborhoods to these various masses on a Sunday. People walked to church. And it, I mean, the, the, the atmosphere was tremendously Catholic. Uh, and it was the depression, people had no money. So oftentimes, a lot of the entertainment for kids was centered on the church. Uh, Brother Kelzer was there. He would gather kids together on a Sunday afternoon to see a movie. He was the tech man for the parish. Way ahead of his time, he, he took his own pictures, developed his pictures. I don't know where he got the movies from, but... Uh, they were regular commercial movies that you would see in theaters, mostly cartoon type of movies. He must have had a connection with the local show house or something. But uh, he would gather the kids together uh, in the lower level part of the church there. And I, there, there could be like 30 or 40 kids there. And he would show them cartoons and he knew the kids from the neighborhood, and he knew the parents, and, and, and he was there all through my elementary years. And then when I was in high school, and as a high school student, I continued to, to help out, uh, you know, as an altar boy. And so my, my life was very much embedded into the Catholic life of St. Viter Parish. And it, it wasn't only for myself, but, but other kids in that neighborhood, kids who live close to the church were probably more active in the church than other kids were who lived at a greater distance from the church. So right. it, it just, St. Viter Church and the priests there and, and the nuns just became part of our lives. So who were some of the priests that were there that you remember? Father Galvin, for example, uh, I, I, there, there are a whole bunch of them. But um, I remember Father Galvin. I, I learned later that he was a member of the St. Vider College debate team. And what impressed me about this priest was his fantastic voice. At that time, you know, in my early years of elementary school, I remember I don't think there was a sound system in the church. The ambo was elevated, so the priest walked up a number of steps to get into this hexagonal-shaped container, which is the ambo. And in the back of the ambo was this shell-like structure that would project their voices out over the crowd. And these people just had excellently developed voices. Now, some of them, like Father Braddock and Father Cardinal, they would walk up and down the aisle, but they had no lapel microphone or anything. They just used their voices. They just knew how to project their voices, you know, and the pace at which to speak. So, you know, as a, as a little kid, I, I was just amazed at these people how they were able to communicate without microphones, you know. So they just elevated their voices, I guess, like opera singers or yeah. something are able to do. And they were able to do this. And the other thing was, right around fourth grade, I think, Hitler invaded Poland. And there was a very substantial ethnic population of Poles, including myself in St. Vider Parish. And many of those people had relatives in Poland. And as you might imagine, the families were upset because the family was upset. The kids were upset. We'd show up at school 
and the um, the confusion that developed in uh, and the chaos in the family because relatives were being bombed, uh, that that kind of transferred to the school. So the, the, the nuns and the priests took upon themselves, you know, to be beacons of hope and all the rest of it. And then just a couple years later, Pearl Harbor was bombed. And I, I was still in elementary school. And, and I found out about Pearl Harbor uh, I had been to a movie on a Sunday afternoon and I was coming home from the movie and me and my friend were walking along and some lady stops us on the street and she says to us, did you hear that Pearl Harbor was bombed? Had no idea where Pearl Harbor was, you know, what that had to do with me. I had no idea at all. And then, of course, I found out because for the next five or six days, there was nothing on the radio except reports of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Of course, there was, this was before the advent of television. So, all you know, the chaos just became compounded because it seemed like we were losing the war. There were German submarines in the Gulf of Mexico off of the coast of New Jersey, and they were sinking oil tankers, and, and you know, you had all of this chaos. You could almost, if, if, you, if you took what you see on Ukraine these days and just transport that into an audio, that, that, that's what life was like when they bombed Pearl Harbor. So you've got constant information about what was bombed, uh, casualties, all of this kind of stuff. Just every minute, you turn on the radio, that's where it was every minute. And then of course, shortly thereafter, uh, my brother was drafted. I had uncles who were drafted, uh, all of that kind of stuff. I, I found my latter elementary years through the sophomore year of high school, politically very chaotic, very upsetting. Wow. So you mentioned that the sisters and the brothers and the priests, I think the word you used or the phrase you used was like beacon of hope or beacon of light. Or, yeah, or they, they constantly had to work with kids and, uh, you, you, you know, kind of calm them down. Do you remember any specific ways that they would do that or any anecdotes? Well, I, I think it was just developing an environment in which the kids you know, felt at ease and welcome and, you know, that kind of thing. It, it wasn't that they had any kind of a program. I think they just developed a, an atmosphere in which the kids felt safe. Wow. Because I, I think kids at that level did not feel, I did not feel safe. I remember you had told me a story once about Maybe it was report cards or something. Oh, yeah. Can Father you, Braddock. Yeah. Can you uh, give yeah. us a little window into Father Braddock and how he visited the elementary school? Yeah. Kids? Father Braddock, who was a parish priest uh, in my latter years at elementary school, he was the priest that was assigned as like a chaplain of the elementary school. And one of his tasks was to come to the classrooms and distribute report cards. So I remember that he came, this, this was eighth grade. He came into the classroom and whenever he came into the classroom, everybody of course stood up and then he had a stand along the walls of the classroom, out of the desk, stand along. And then he was passing the report cards out and he would say, Mary Smith, and then he would comment on the grades. <laughs> and then he came to, nerve wracking. And then he came to Peter D. Francesco. I remember the kid, I remember this incident, came to Peter D. Francesco, was standing in front of a vertical bookcase that had that was rather tall, much taller than Peter D. Francisco, who was probably around, I suspect, seven feet tall. And this thing was not anchored. The bookcase was not anchored. So Father Braddock has got Peter Day Francisco's report card and whoa. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
you I can see here you have not been doing your work. <laughs> and he kind of takes a few steps toward Peter de Francesco, who did not have any idea what would follow next. And he backs up. And of course, he backed right up into that bookcase. The whole thing just toppled over Peter de Francisco, who landed on his stomach with the bookcase and all of the books on top of him. And Father Braddock runs over to, oh, <laughs> oh what happened? <laughs> so we finally retrieved them from underneath the bookcase <laughs> hopefully uninjured <laughs> yeah i mean you know it, but but everybody was so startled you know and well i can remember to this day you know yeah. this kid being hit by the bookcase and all the books covering his body did that make anybody afraid of father braddock afterwards? well I, I think I, I think kids were afraid because of the very situation. You know, somebody has your report card and they're saying, whoa, you really did well, but whoa, Peter, what happened to you? <laughs> did you lose your books or what? <laughs> so maybe for you, this was a precursor to different methods of classroom management. <laughs> but I, I have to say that Father Braddock was one of the kindest people. And later on, when I was a Viatorian community member living on Sheridan Road, and he was retired there, he would go around, collect shoes and articles of clothing, package them together, bring them down to West Madison Street, which at that time was referred to as Skid Row, he would distribute the articles of clothing to the to these indigent people, mostly I suspect were out of control alcoholics. And he died on Skid Row. Mm. And for a better part of his day, his body went unidentified. I, I don't know what the police thought. He must not have had identification on himself or something. And then I can remember this clearly when he was buried from uh, St. Vider Church, the residents of Skid Row showed up at Vider's church there to attend the funeral. Wow. So he must have had a major impact on he people did. on the streets. Yes. And so I, I I knew him from the Peter Day Francisco story, and I knew him later as a as part of the Skid Row personal Catholic charities crusade that he led down there. So and I believe he had also been involved with the labor movement. So you speak of your days of uh, when you're in formation at Sheridan Road, and as you were in your early days of formation at Sheridan Road. What led you to um, consider joining the Viatorians? What, what was the draw for you? Obviously, you had your experiences at St. Viator Parish in school. Uh, you went to high school somewhere. And then somewhere along the line, a decision was made to join the community. I remember, and, and I don't know the background to this, but, but anyway, there, there were a number of us kids from and the neighborhood there around Vider's Pier and uh, Vider's Church. One day, somebody, I don't know whether it was the pastor or who it was, but anyway, we were invited to come up to the rectory, and um, there was going to be some conversation about the Viatorian community. And so, and I, I can't remember, I, I suspect I was personally invited, but I just don't remember. But there were a number of us kids, and, and I would have been in high school at this time, maybe like a sophomore year of high school, something like that. So I showed up, and uh, the priest who was kind of leading the discussion was Father Demert from, and he was a Viatorian who taught at St. Philip's High School. And I can remember some of the priests were there and a number of us kids from various high schools, not many, maybe like four or five, 
And it was kind of like a free flow conversation about the Viatorian community. Now, what high school did you attend? I went to St. Mel. That was the first kind of formal discussion I had with anybody about the possibility of entering the Viatorian community. But you got to remember, there's this whole background of me being part of the extended Viatorian community from that parish that kind of bled out into the neighborhood. I was kind of caught up in all of that. Yeah, you were breathing Viatorian. Yes, or whatever. yes, I, I was. Yes, I, 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 to a certain extent, I was a Viatorian became I, before I became a Viatorian, you know. And, and there were other, there, there were other people in the parish too, like Ray Field, Bob Speakerman, Charlie Moranto, the two Pizer brothers. All men who joined and professed vows and remained with it for lifetime. Yeah. And there were some other people who joined the community from the parish, but then, then dropped out. But uh, th those are the ones that may maybe I'm forgetting some, but there, there were, oh, John Peters, John Peters was another one. But but anyway, there were a lot there was there was a, a lot of vocations from that parish there. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing was, in, in those years, like in the 40s and 50s, everything, as I said, was very Catholic. So if somebody expressed an interest like or told parents or relatives that he was thinking about joining a community a religious community or becoming a priest or a brother or with the girls becoming an i mean you got tremendous support there was no doubt in anybody's mind that this was a very good thing and and you ought to think about it you ought to do it and whatever your decision is, we're going to be there for you and, and all the rest of it. So the atmosphere then is very, or was very much different from the atmosphere today. Uh, I, I know that if a son or a daughter thinks about joining or, or even investigate, investigating the possibility of joining a religious community, they might very well get very little support in the family or among friends or the first reaction might be what are you thinking of doing <laughs> so i i lived in a different time you know totally different time yeah i remember my parents my dad said hey whatever you want to do i'm behind you 100 percent." my mom said the same thing but then for a year or so are you sure are you sure are you sure <laughs> And yeah. then I took vows and she stopped asking that question. So. <laughs> what, what did your, or when did you say, okay, I think I need to try this out? What, what was the moment there? Well, the moment was when I was a senior in high school, I had to make a decision about whether I was going to enroll at the Illinois Institute of Technology and start an engineering program or join the Viatorian community. Now, how much of this decision had to do with the Illinois Institute of Technology being on the south side of Chicago, and you were a north sider? <laughs> no, it didn't enter into the picture at all, the distance thing. But it, it I, I mean, literally, I had to make up my mind. I remember the, the day that I came to the Viatorian community. It was the seventh day of the seventh month of 1947. Wow. That I appeared on Sheridan Road, <laughs> 62. And, but I, you know, I had, I was forced to make a decision because I'm sure my, at some point my parents would ask me, what are you doing about college? <laughs> <laughs> was that an expectation that you were going to go to college? Well, the expectation was that I had to do something, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, they, they would not just tolerate me doing nothing. <laughs> just hanging out in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I, I would say it probably over a period of a few months, 
I finally made a decision to come to the Viatorian community. So I, so you started and, and I never looked back. I, mm -hmm. I thought there, there had been discussion with Brother Kelzer about what religious life was like. It, it, it wasn't like I was making the, this decision randomly mm -hmm. because I, I had been in discussion with Brother Kelzer you know, what, what is, what is religious life like? I had asked him questions and that kind of thing. You, you know, what, if I would join the community, where, where would I live? Where, where would I be? You know, that kind of thing. Did he give you good and honest answers? Yes, or? he oh, was, good. he was very good. So I would say that was my contact. That was the John Eustace oh. of my, <laughs> of my vocation discernment was Brother Kelzer. He was my contact guy, the guy that showed me the cartoon movies. Yeah. You know, I figured, well, could go ask him, you know, yeah. don't don't go to Braddock. <laughs> <laughs> Books go, might fall under go there. to Kelzer. Yeah. <laughs> find out what this was all about and uh, how I would fit in and what what are the pros and cons, uh, that, that kind of thing. Will I ever see my parents again? <laughs> you know, these are, are typical questions nowadays, too. Yeah. You know, people ask that. And of course, you do see your parents again. <laughs> so <laughs> you're able to visit them as well. So you joined on uh, 7-7-47 right. at uh, Sheridan Road up Sheridan near Loyola Road. University. Actually, I that, that's where I, I had my novitiate. And I met. I think I had the most extraordinary novice master, Father Roger Droulette. Oh, yeah. Now, Father Roger Droulette, he was a Viatorian missionary. He went to... He was in Manchuria, China. I right, exactly. He was, he was a Viatorian missionary who went to Manchuria in 19... 33. The Viatorians started a high school in Supingai. And the reason why I'm able to pronounce these correctly is because of the novice master. But, <laughs> but anyway, the Viatorians had set up a high school in Supingai, Manchuria. And at that time, that Manchuko province was under the governance of the Japanese. They had invaded that area two years before. And so they were already there when the Viatorian, when, when Father Droulette. I, I think the Viatorians and the Japanese may have come about the same time to Manchuria. And then two years later, Father Droulette came. And he was there until 1941 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and all of the missionaries were declared enemies and they were put in internment camps. And he was in the internment camp for two years. He was in the internment camp. He was there until 1943 when the Japanese and American government exchanged prisoners and the ship that they used was a, it's either Norwegian or Swedish ship that they used to exchange the people that were in internment. And it was in 43 and the ship's name is, or was the Gripsholm. I think like G-R-I-P-S-H-O-L-M. And that was the ship that they used to exchange they, the, the ship would go pick them up and then leave them in some neutral city, maybe in South America or something. And then a Japanese ship would come and take the Japanese people away. But, but, they, but they used the same ship for Japanese and Americans. And they would drop them off in a neutral port. Then either a U.S. ship or a Japanese ship would go there, pick them up and bring them back to the home country. Wow. And that was Father Drolet's experience. That was 1943. So when I had him as a novice master, 
It was 1947. Not too long afterwards. Not too long after. And his memory was still sharp of all of his experiences there. So as part of my, part of the novitiate conferences, you, you can imagine, because he peppered those with his experiences over the eight years with the Chinese culture and also his experiences in the internment camp. So he shared all that. And I think that uh, he had great respect for the, for the Chinese culture, for Buddhism. And in fact, in 1948, the year after I completed my novitiate, he went back. I, I couldn't believe it. He went to, uh, I think he went to Kyoto. He went to Japan. The very people that interned him, he went back as a missionary. Wow. And he, and he stayed there. He stayed either there or in Taiwan the rest of his life. And he lived to be close to 100. I remember my, the first summer I was joined the Viatorians as a pre-novice. I think he, uh, he had he was maybe 98, 99 years old. Yeah. And, uh, probably within the first month that I was here, uh, there was a massive memorial for him because uh, he had just passed away in Taiwan. I think, he in was Taipei. incredible. And I think that looking back as a novice, he put great emphasis on silence, the value of silence and patience. And I just wonder, I, uh, you, you know, I, I think that he was influenced by the Buddhist culture and silence is a, the, the value of silence in the Buddhist culture is a, is a big thing. And I think that, I think he Christianized some of those ideas and brought them to the novitiate with him as, a, as the novice master. Are there any spiritual practices or ideas that he shared with you at that time that you still carry with you today? I, I can remember something that he had repeated many times. He talked, you know, you have a picture of yourself, of, of what you want to be. So that's kind of like an ideal self. You know, you have this picture of what you want to be. And that picture is going to change throughout your life. You're, you're, you're going to have that image of, of yourself. And that, that's why I think it has kind of like a Buddhist foundation or something, you know. But, but anyway, you have this image of yourself. And this image is going to continue to change. And then through a dialogue with yourself, you, you know, and th this is where the silence part comes in, right? That you, you get to know yourself and where you are. And then you realize that there's a gap between where you are and your ideal self. And your task is to shorten the gap. And I can remember him using that imagery a good number of times as we, as he, in, in his conferences with the novices during that whole year. But that was the, that, that was the theme that he continually returned to about this shortening the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And that is, and, that, and then he extended it, you know, that, that this is not just for now, but, but this is what you're going to be doing, you know, this, the shortening of the gap thing. And I, I think there's great truth in that. But I said to myself later on, I wonder if he's not just introducing maybe some Buddhist techniques here. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> they work. Maybe, maybe work. Christianize yeah. some Buddhism or something that Could he be. learned. You know, in China, <laughs> but he and he was great on silence about the value of silence, and uh, there's a difference between the silence that you experience when you go back to your room, that kind of silence, and the silence that you experience when you are meditating with a group of novices, and we 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 had a book. I still remember the book. There's probably a copy in the uh, in the archives, but um, 
it was a meditation book that was used by a lot of religious communities. And the name of the, the author of the book, the author was a German Jesuit. His name was Bruno Vercruz. That was the book. And there was a meditation for each day of the year. And the meditation started out, there were two preludes, and then there was a consideration, and then was an application. And you did that three times during the, during the meditation, you know. So when the novice first came to the community, I mean, we didn't, I, I didn't know beans about meditation. What, it, what, is, what is he talking about? <laughs> And, and so many other things. I, I had no idea about meditation. Not now, I suspect a lot of people know about meditation because it's done in corporations and schools and prisons and all over the place, you know. Had no idea what this was. But, um, but then he explained it and, he, and he, he, he used as a springboard this whole Thing about silence and patience and he built he built that in as the tool that one uses when one enters into meditation so but we did this meditation every day for a half hour wow so and then we had conferences every day and frequently the meditate he would use the meditation as a springboard to some of the elements that he'd be talking about during the conference and and that, that's how we introduced religious life to us, of course, we're through these conferences. Mm -hmm. So then you professed vows, you went to college, seminary, all of that. What was, um, what was that experience for you? What, um, you're obviously a priest now. Yeah. Um, so where did you make a decision to say, I, I think ordained life is, is for me? I already had that sense before I came to the community. I realized, you know, through Brother Kelzer, that the Viatorian community was made up of both brothers and priests, you know, and he, he explained what that was all about. I, I think that may, maybe it was because the priesthood was so visible. There were, there were five priests that lived in that rectory at that, at that time. And during the war years, I mean, there were, we, we had a lot of chaplains, you know, during, we, we must have had somewhere between 15 and 20 chaplains, I suspect. And that was their, their, their place of residence while they were moving around. So these, these chaplains, these military chaplains were always visible in, in the parish during the, during the war years. And, um, the, the one that stands out in my mind is Father O'Neill, because I met him again when he was a Viatorian at St. Vitor High School. Mm. That was the same guy I served mass for when he was a military chaplain. And there he was. I, they, they would always wear their military garb because I don't think they had any other clothes. And they put the vestments over the military garb and they would be saying mass and they might be there for a few weeks and then they would be gone. And with Eddie O'Neill, I, I mean, he's kind of a mild mannered guy. He got the Purple Heart. He landed at Normandy a few days after the invasion was in that Normandy Armady that moved toward Germany. And someplace along the line, he was wounded. He had the Purple Heart. And when I knew him at St. Vitor High School, he was a mild, same mild-mannered guy, <laughs> you know. And then we had a, pre, a young priest in his 30s at Vitor's uh, who was actually assigned to the parish, Father Flaherty, who decided to become a chaplain. And so he was on a training. He, he did his, his military training, in, I, I believe, in Georgia. And he died. He got, he got killed in an accident. And the effect that had, oh, my God. You know, it, it disturbs me today. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the guy was 30 years old. So in the back of the church, 
you go to the back of the church, there's a bronze plaque at Viders, and you will see the name of all of the Vider parishioners who had served in World War II. Father Flaherty. Huh. All the ones that were killed. And, and that was the other thing. Oh, my God. You, you'd walk up and down the streets there. You'd find the flags in the window. The, I don't know. Have you heard about blue stars and gold stars? Mm -hmm. You'd yep. see these blue star flags in people's windows. And then that meant they had be walking down the street and then the blue one would flip to a gold one. That meant that they were killed. Not happy thoughts. No, but. no. <laughs> when did you start seminary studies? What approximately what year would that have been? I taught in Springfield as a brother after college in 51, 52. And then I went to Catholic U in 1952. So from 1952 for the next... Like 56, okay. I was in a seminary, and I just loved the experience. Why? Part of it is had to do with where the seminary was. It was located in Washington, D.C., at Catholic University. And Washington, D.C. is one of the most interesting parts of the country. I mean, there is everything within a couple of hours drive of Washington. You can visit Civil War battlefields. You can be at the ocean. You can be at Skyline Drive at Front Royal, Virginia. You know, and there, there is so much to see museum, art museums, the Smithsonian. It, it is just filled with activities and things to see and things to do. And at that particular time in the 50s, Catholic University of America was just a hotbed of Catholic thought. It was pre-Vatican, right? Pre-Vatican, but a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the experts that ended up at Vatican II were from Catholic University. You know, they would accompany bishops and uh, that that were involved in Vatican II. And I'll just tell you one story to, to to give you a flavor of this thing, because in that area there were both conserve highly conservative clergy. Let's keep it all the same, and then there were the more progressive people or liberals, as if you might want to call them. So the Jesuits in Baltimore tend to be progressive at their seminary and Catholic University, for the most part, tended to be on the conservative side. And I can remember John Courtney Murray. It might, the name might not mean anything now, but at that time, he was, I, I mean, he was one of the theological voices behind the Vatican II thing. And the seminary was large. Religious communities had residences in that area around the Catholic University of America, and that's where the seminary was. The seminary building was Caldwell Hall. And I had a teacher whose name was Joseph Fenton. Joseph Fenton was a personal friend of Cardinal Ottaviani. Cardinal Ottaviani was not particularly interested in having Vatican II get off the ground and progress. So he was like one of the major leaders of the anti-Vatican II happening. Anyway, Joseph Fenton was his friend, so he was like Cardinal Ottaviani. So the seminarians, they had like a, a lecture program, and the seminarians were responsible for getting the speakers to the uh, lecture program. And so one of the speakers they got was John Courtney Murray from the Jesuit, liberal, progressive, let's make a new future kind of guy. They invited him to give a talk at Catholic University. 
in this lecture program. So he shows up. Well, these seminarians who designed the program didn't think that they had to discuss who would speak and who would not speak. They didn't think they had to discuss that with the theology faculty. The next day after the talk, I had Joseph Fenton in class for dogma. He just lit into not only the seminarians who arranged for the talk, but seminarians in general. <laughs> he was furious that we would invite this guy to the Catholic University of America to desecrate this institution. <laughs> And anyway, that just gives you kind of a flavor of um, the atmosphere of the times. And there were great Catholic theologians in operation at that time in the United States and in Europe, uh, beside John Courtney Murray, which probably was the best known one. But there, there were the Lubach. Uh, yeah, he's one of the ones I've been Hans looking. Kuhn, oh yeah, all of these uh, we've been looking at in my seminary studies. Carl Rahner, his brother Hugo Rahner, Benedictine liturgist from this country. You know, you know they had their roots in Europe, and I mean they had all kinds of wonderful ideas for reshaping the liturgy, and they still do. You know, they're they're very active, but there were many well-known. Catholic theologians in Europe, in the United States, and a lot of their materials uh, worked their way into the seminary at Catholic University. And this is at the time when, before Vatican II That's was announced? about 10 years before Vatican II. So this was already brewing. This oh, yeah. Discussions yeah. were happening. Oh, yeah. The discussions were going on, and what should the church be? What should the church what would the church of the future look like? What kind of changes need to be made? Uh, uh, you, you know, if you think about it, 10 years before Vatican II, Vatican II ended in 65. 10 years before 55, when I was still in the seminary, that's when Pius XII already became, began the liturgical form. The Easter Vigil, Saturday, Holy Saturday, was changed in, well, it was either 53 or 55, I can't remember which, but it was in the, in, in, in the mid-50s. He already started to change the liturgy. And the first change, the first noticeable change that the people would observe is the, the, the change of what happened on Holy Saturday before it was all in the morning and nobody showed up. Later on, we had the Easter Vigil very close to what we now experience. That happened 10 years before Vatican II. And, and the other thing he changed was fasting before communion. Uh, in the, in, before Pius XII made the changes, people fasted from everything, including water from midnight. Then he changed it to three hours. Then it was changed to one hour. Then you could drink water, you know, and water no longer broke the fast. I mean, that, those things, I mean, those were monumental changes and they were happening 10 years before Vatican II. So you could see that Vatican II was just a, an offshoot of all of the stuff brewing in this country and in Europe. So you were ordained in 56? 56. Okay, so you were ordained before all of the changes oh, yeah. of Vatican II I was II ordained happened. before, yeah. What, what is your perspective of being an ordained priest before Vatican II and then afterwards? Uh, well... And maybe liturg let's start liturgically. Well, just think about walking in, into a church in uh, the late 50s what would be your experience, okay? So you walk through the front door of St. Byer Church in Chicago. What, what would you observe? What would you see? Well, you, you would see one thing, well-dressed people on a Sunday. You would see that the women all were wearing hats. 
And the women who did not wear hats were wearing Kleenex. They pinned Kleenex to their heads, so their heads were covered. Some of them wore Spanish-type veils that they carried in their purse for that purpose, but their heads were covered. Nobody would be talking. Everybody would be silent. They would go to the pew, and they would either sit down or they would kneel. Uh, on a Sunday, it would be a high mass. During the week, it would be a low mass. So you would have six candles. You would find the priest typically in relatively elegant vestments and altar boys dressed in, in uh, cassocks. The priest would be facing the wall. There, the, there would be no involvement, no verbal involvement by the people. They would be frequently sitting in the pew saying a rosary. Some of them would be able to follow the Mass if they learned to do so in a St. Joseph Missal, which was a translation of the Latin into English. So the priest was presiding in Latin? The priest would be presiding in Latin. The music would be typically some form of Gregorian chant. You would, almost all the churches had choirs for the major Masses on Sunday. You, you would be hearing Gregorian chant, but you would not be participating in that. You would be, so it would be observing, listening, absorbing the feeling of a sacred space in quiet. And you would be frequently doing your own devotion, which mo most people said rosaries during that time. Uh, but you might be reading the prayers in a missal. Who knows? But that was it. And you walk, and you did not carry on conversation with anybody. There was no kiss of peace. You, you would not be doing anything like that. Uh, that would not be welcome. You would not be shaking hands with the person in the pew behind you, for sure. Okay, so that's, I mean, that that's the image. You were Whatever it was, whatever the atmosphere was, it was to create a sacred space. And you were, you were participating in the priest intervening for you with God, which you felt, at least I felt in my spirit, that I was, this was a sacred space. And he was somehow intervening for me with God as I was in the sacred space. Okay, so then fast forward. Fast forward it, it, was traumatic. <laughs> for you or for everybody? or Everybody. They were learning hymns. I mean, uh, th this was, uh, I mean, people were singing. Uh, you had people who were lectors who were, I mean, pre-Vatican II, lay people were never found in the sanctuary unless it was to clean. <laughs> you know, clean the candles or the altar cloths or something. Then after after Vatican II, I mean, lay people actually became lectors. They became communion ministers. People were involved in preparation of the liturgy, singing. The priest faced the people. The mass was said in the vernacular. So there was a shift. There was a dramatic shift from being a witness of the priest who was interceding for you to God, who was just around the corner, to this other modality. Uh, I think we lost a little bit about the sacred space. I think there was a little bit of that that, that went. Whether that's important or not, I don't know. But I mean, now you walk into a church, there are people talking all over the place, right? I mean, they're discussing what happened to them during the week and everything else, you know, and that, that used to upset people. That used to upset some people that other people were talking over there, you know, but we all know what the modern atmosphere in the church is, you know, part in, in the, what is to be underscored is that it's collaborative and participatory. At every level, at every level. I mean, even lay people are giving communion and people are receiving it in their hands, you know. 
So a couple of the dramatic changes that I can imagine are you as a priest, one Sunday, you are celebrating Mass, you are presiding, you are facing the back wall of the church at the big altar, and things are in Latin. The next Sunday, you turn around and you see people and you're, you're in English. Well, it, it didn't happen quite that fast. It happened in stages. Uh, the people were prepared. They were gradually prepared for what the new liturgy would look like. As I remember, we, we did not get rid of all of the Latin instantaneously. I think there, were, there was some movement in that direction. We have the, it happened gradually and people were prepared and they, they knew what was happening. But uh, it's, it's a totally different feeling when, you are, when a priest is facing the people and verbalizing in the vernacular. It's a totally different experience in comparison to what we had pre-Vatican. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, people in the church today who are saying, oh, we need to have the Latin form of the Mass. We need to, uh, because it is sacred, it is uh, something that feels more sacred. And there's some contention in the church with that. What would be a response that you might have, having been a person who has lived through it, uh, both as priest, but also as you're, you're on the other side of the altar, so to speak, as a child, too? So what, what would be your I, I, words I, of wisdom I think here? a lot depends upon how a person views church. What is your definition of church? And I, I think that probably is the essential question. And how you answer that is, is going to govern what makes you feel comfortable. If you think in terms of church as priest representing people, then you have one view. If you think about church as us, then you're going to have another view. So a lot depends upon how you, how you view. Now, I think my own experience is, as a high school teacher, kids are very comfortable in the new liturgy. Kids, are, of course, they have not experienced the old liturgy, but they are extremely comfortable in the new liturgy. And there's something to be said about church being us. Uh, the church is not the hierarchy and priest and Although, although they're important because we need strong leadership in the church, but they, they, they are just part of the church. And if you take St. Paul's view of the mystical body, where I think this is in for, for First Corinthians, you can check it out. But anyway, Paul talks about charisms, that each individual person is given a charism for building up the whole body. If that's your view of church, well, I think the modern liturgy, the post-Vatican II liturgy and view of the church fulfills what St. Paul is talking about when he says that each person is given a charism to build up the whole body. And he says some, and then he makes a list, some as teachers, some as this, some as that, some as this. I mean, all of that is gathered together as church. So how have you been living out the charism to build up the body? Well, if you, if you adopt the, of St. Paul's idea of charism and building up the body of Christ, the, as he calls it, the mystical body, okay, if you consider that to be the church, then the church becomes more than brick and mortar, right? It becomes what happens when you walk out of the church, out of the brick and mortar, that that's where, so to speak, church begins, the, the activity of the disciples, the people who are, who are proclaiming the good news. Okay, how do I proclaim the good news today, right? So that's, that's where I am in proclaiming the good news today. And I'm still happy to, to be, part of St. Vider High School 
even though I am proclaiming the good news digitally, and, and maybe some people would not recognize it as good news, but in, in effect, it is, uh, you, you know, when you involve yourself in somebody else's life to advance your own capability of living more comfortably in this world, you are part of the proclamation of the good news. That's all for this episode of Roundtables on the Way. We'd like to thank Father Perm for joining us for this conversation. We pray for his health and strength and offer God our gratitude for his many years of witness and service. Viatorian Voices, Conversations on the Way is a production of Viatorian Vocation Ministry. The Viatorians are professed brothers and priests together with women and men lay associates who proclaim Jesus Christ and his gospel and raise communities where faith is lived, deepened, and celebrated. In the footsteps of Venerable Louis Curbs and under the patronage of St. Vider, we strive to do everything well so that through us, Jesus may be adored and loved. To learn more about our community, visit viatorians.com or follow us on social media at Viatorian USA. Those seeking support and accompaniment in exploring God's invitation for them are invited to reach out to Vocation Ministry. Send us a DM on social media or email vocations at viatorians.com to start a conversation. On behalf of Brother John and the Viatorian community, I'm Dan Masterton. St. Vider, pray for us. Adored and loved be Jesus. Jesus.